0: We hope you enjoy this podcast. This week on PA Books, the author of Buck, a Memoir, M.K. Asante. M.K. Asante, author of Buck, a Memoir. Why are you writing a memoir at this point in your life? (laughs) Well, you know, um, memoirs deal with a specific
1: period of time in our lives, you know, and I wanted to focus on my coming of age because I felt it would be incredibly inspirational. Um, I felt like it would be empowering for other people to read about my journey. You know, Frederick Douglass said, without struggle, there's no progress. And so I wanted to focus on a time in my life where I endured great struggle, but also great progress. And so I chose to write a memoir, Buck, about my time coming up in Philadelphia and really my education, you know, um... Buck is a book about education. It's about miseducation. It's about self-education, re-education, street education, and also the difference and the distance between school and education.
0: What does the MK stand for?
1: Ah, you know, um, my first name is Malefi, My middle name is Malo.
0: Where'd you get that name?
1: Uh, I, you know, my parents, um, I was born in Zimbabwe. My parents are from America. It's a really interesting story. That's part of the reason why I wrote a memoir, you know. You start to realize how unique your story is. You know, my parents, uh, my mom is from Brooklyn, New York. Um, my, mom, my dad is from Valdosta, Georgia, one of 16 children. And they, you know, many people talk about, you know, many African Americans talk about, you know, in the abstract, moving back to Africa, you know. Um, but my parents actually did that. They they moved back to Africa. So when in the eighties, they moved to Africa, Zimbabwe, to work on the independence struggle there, and uh, I was born shortly after. And uh, then we came back to, to Philly. So that that's why I got the name. Have you been to? at Zimbabwe since you grew up? I have, I have. I've been to, I've been to over 40 countries and I've been to lots of countries in Africa. Um, Zimbabwe, Zambia, Namibia, Malawi, Uganda, Kenya, Ghana, Senegal, Egypt. I mean, just all over the the continent. I love Africa.
0: For people who don't know, where's uh, Zimbabwe? Okay, so
1: Zimbabwe's in Southern Africa and um, you know, just a, a really amazing country full of rich history. Um, they've, they've had some struggles uh, in recent years, you know, politically, um, but really just an amazing country, amazing people, um, just beautiful, you know, landscape and, and just really a, one of the most well-read societies I've ever been in. Everybody reads, everybody. Little kids, all everybody read It's a, it's a reading, very literate society. So it's cool to, be, to to go back. Were you a reader when you were a kid? When I no, not when I started out. You know, uh, for me, reading um, it, it took a while for me to really start to read and, and embrace reading. You know, for from so many years, I wasn't interested in reading. You know, um, and, and I think it was a lot, largely to do with um, you know some of what's going on in the book. You know, um, this book talks about kind of a, a troubled adolescence. You know, for some of the years, and so it wasn't until much later in my teenage years that I discovered. Uh, first writing and then reading, right? Because I wanted to be a, a, a good writer, and so in order to be a good writer, I had to be a good reader. And so I started reading, and, you know, so it took it took a while. But once I started reading, I started to realize the connection between... Um, my thoughts and my vocabulary, right? I started to realize that I sub vocalized. We as human beings sub meaning we think in words. And so, you know, by having a limited vocabulary, you're also having limited thoughts. And so I really wanted to expand my vocabulary, read a lot, because I wanted to be able to think about a lot of big ideas.
0: How old were you when you started reading? Um, it was probably
1: 16 going on 17. Around that, What around, got you started? That age? Well, you know, we would have to back up a little bit. Um, you know, Buck deals with, you know, my crazy kind of interesting childhood, educational street, all these different things happening. Um, you know, I wasn't interested in school for a long time. I got kicked out of a lot of schools, actually. Um, you know, I was just uh, rebelling against everything. And um, I, I, I ended up in an alternative school called Creffield. And uh, it's in Chestnut Hill, and, you know, it was a school. I'd been kicked out of other schools before. My mom, she begged me to go to school. You know, my mom was having mental health issues. Um, You know, at this point, my my father was gone. My brother was in jail. And uh, a lot of things, there was a lot of strife in the family. And um, my mom, she really uh, urged me, you have to go to school, you have to go to school. I said, Mom, but no school will take me. She said, if I find a school that will take you, will you go? So I said, sure, I'll go. So my mom finds this school called Creffield. Now, other schools I went to, you know, looked like, uh, one school looked like a warehouse. Uh, Another school looked like a prison, jail. You know, know, these are some of the schools that I went to. But the school, the alternative school, Creffield, looked like a gingerbread house. (laughs) And so I get up and I start seeing these kids and they're walking in. And this some of the most eccentric, strangest kids I've ever seen in my life <laughs> and I remember thinking to myself this is an alternative school well I'm I'm not this alternative <laughs> you know what I mean and send me back to the pub but anyway uh, I I decided to tough it out and I get to the class and uh, a teacher puts a blank piece of paper in front of every every student and the teacher says right And, uh, you know, of course, I don't do it. I haven't done schoolwork at this point in a while. You know, I've been doing my own thing. And uh, she comes over to me and she says, no, I I want you to write. I said, well, what would you want me to write? She said, write anything you want. Anything I want. I didn't believe her, so I wrote an expletive first (laughs) to see if she was serious. And um, she said, good, now keep going. And I haven't stopped yet. <laughs> I want to read you a, a section from that from that part of the book. It's, it's uh, really uh, one of the, the most transformational parts of, of, of my journey. Um, I turn the page over, it's blank again. The blank page is the starter pistol that fires and triggers my mind to sprint. What will I write? What will I say? Will I say what I write, write what I say? Something funny? Something serious? Something about my family? How will I start? Whose story will I tell? My story? Something made up? A story about a boy from Philly? A lost boy who wants to find himself but doesn't know where to look? Who wants to tell his story but doesn't know where to begin or end? Who searches anyway and discovers something about himself? The world. I stare at the blank page. An ocean of white alive with possibility. I hear myself take a breath, then exhale, deep, like I just rose from underwater. It's like I'm at the free throw line again, foul shots, like the game is on the line again. I remember something my dad told me, shoot to make it. My hands shaking now, trembling like it's freezing. Then it hits, a silence louder than all the music I've ever heard in my life all the light in the world in one beam before me. I grip the pen and something shoots down my spine, sits me straight up. The pen feels heavy, like it's made of stone. I stare deep into the blank page and see myself. I feel something I've never felt before. Purpose. I don't know what my exact purpose is yet, but I know it has something to do with this pen and this blank page. I am a blank page. Holding the pen this way, snug and firm in my fists, makes me feel like I can write my future, spell out my destiny in sharp strokes. The blank page begs me to tell a story, a story that's never been told before and to tell it like it will never be told again. The blank page lights up a room in my heart that I didn't even know existed. So... That's a a scene from the moment when I discovered writing and then subsequently discovered reading because I wanted to be a good writer.
0: And just to jump ahead to the present, you're now a college professor?
1: Yeah, I'm now a a tenured professor at Morgan State University. Um, I teach creative writing, um, screenwriting, film. I teach a class based on my last book called It's Bigger Than Hip Hop, which uses hip hop as a, a, a lens or
0: a prism to kind of examine social political issues. Well, well, just latching onto that for somebody who just does not get hip hop, can you explain what is it about that has the appeal?
1: Yeah, I mean, there's there's lots. You know, there's so much confusion sometimes about about hip hop. Um, and 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 Buck is definitely you know written in a in a hip hop tradition in, in a way. Um, but hip hop is you know a cultural movement, and it has five elements. And so when people talk about hip hop, sometimes they're talking about rap music. Um, Sometimes they're talking about hip-hop culture. And so sometimes those things are are used interchangeably, but they're not the same. Um, And, in fact, a lot of times what we do classify, what we hear on the radio or sometimes what we see, it may not even be hip-hop. It may not even really represent the culture, but it may be called hip hop, right? And so there's sometimes confusion. But hip hop culture has five elements, right? So one of those elements is MCing, which is language arts, right? You know, it's really almost like a curriculum if you think about it. So you have emceeing, which is language arts. It's all about similes and metaphors and stanzas and pantameter, right? So all these urban kids, they know about, you know, all these sophisticated literary devices that you use in poetry. They don't necessarily know what they're called, but listening to hip hop, you double entendres and triple entendres, all you're hearing all these these things right so you've got the emceeing that's the lyrical element the language arts then you've got the visual arts right which is aerosol art which can be done not just obviously graffiti on walls but it can be done you know there's galleries that exhibit graffiti and all types of things. So you've got the visual art. Then you have the, the notion of using your body as art and as a language, right? And that's the choreography part. That's what they call be boring or be girling. You know, that's break dancing, right? And so you've got the dancing element. You've got the MCing. You've got the visual art. And then you've got the the archival, the historic element. And that's DJing. You know, there's a, um, there's a symbol in West Africa, the Sankofa bird. It says, you know, go back to the past to be able to move forward, right? So your past informs your future in this sense, right? Um, And so DJing is really about that. It's a connection to the past, right? We take records that were already made, that were and we reinterpret them and put them in a new context, right? And so it really is a connection to the past, and it's a way to honor the past in the present moment. Um, and then the fifth element of hip-hop, which a lot of people don't talk about, a lot of people don't know, is actually knowledge, wisdom, and understanding. And this element is actually supposed to inform all the other elements in hip-hop. So technically, you're not supposed to be able to be an MC, a lyricist, a rapper, without having that Knowledge, wisdom, and understanding element, right? Because the idea is, well, what are you gonna rap about? Well, clearly, people have gotten around that, right? And they just decided to rap anyway. But, um, but that's that's hip hop in a nutshell. And um, you know, November twelfth, nineteen seventy four. Hip hop's birthday, but it goes back much, you know, it's part of a continuation of African American oral tradition, African American um, resistance tradition, African American music tradition. It's, it's part of this whole legacy. And for, you know, for a, a long time, um, and still is the case, you know, it, it is one of the, the only ways that we hear in the mainstream the voices of, of young black men and women.
0: You do that, you do that rapping? young
1: buck buck wild buck shots buck town slave buck black buck make buck buck now you know for me it's poetry i mean rapping really is poetry at its highest form you know any uh person that you know not every rapper is a poet right but when we talk about an mc a lyricist it's just poetry
0: how much of it are you making up on the spot and how much do you sit down and painstakingly write out and memorize well, you
1: know, it's it's always kind of a combination of both, you know what I mean? And so you're, you know, you're, you're writing things, things are coming to mind spontaneously, and even when you deliver things, you know, you'll change them, you know, on the spot. And so it's, it's a really, it's a back and forth. It reminds me of, you know, the first writers that I really got into when I started reading, you asked me when did I start reading and why, you know, what got me into it? Well, the first book I remember reading My teacher gave me a book. This was after I started, you know, writing and liking writing. I said, I really like this writing. She said, if you want to be a good writer, you got to be a good reader. Here's a book. So I come in the next day and I say, hey, Stacey, can I have another book? And she says, well, can you read the one that I gave you yesterday and then I'll I'll give you another book. I said, well, I already read it. She said, looked at me, you know, funny. (laughs) And I said, yeah, I, I read it. She said, Really? I said, I saw the best minds of my generation destroyed by madness, starving, hysterical, naked, dragging themselves to the Negro streets at dawn, looking for an angry, fix. angel-headed hipsters, dining in the machinery of night. And so I, I started reciting Howl from her, uh, Allen Ginsberg, and she said, wow, you really did read the book. I said, no, not only did I read it, I internalized it, I synthesized it, it's part of me now. I need another book. <laughs> and she gave me uh, On the Road by Jack Kerouac. And, um, and I devoured that as well. And I started reading a book a day and just being, becoming a voracious reader. And one of the things that attracted me about the Beat Generation writers is how much they reminded me of hip-hop artists, you know? The ways in which, first of all, you know, Jack Kerouac, Allen Ginsberg, uh, William Burroughs, um, you know who you slightly resemble to me. <laughs> uh, uh, William, I don't William, know if that's a compliment. Uh, yeah, or no, not. of course, man. <laughs> William Burroughs is the man. Um, William Burroughs, you know, all, all these writers. You know, one thing about them, they they did something called spontaneous prose. They were really into spontaneous prose. And what what is spontaneous prose? It's essentially freestyling. Right. Freestyling in hip hop is when we come up with lyrics on the spot. You know, we say time and time again, you know, it's MK. I'm talking on the books TV with PCN. You know, that's that's freestyling. That's all it is. And that's what Jack Kerouac and Ginsburg and Burroughs were doing. They were coming up with spontaneous prose. And what was the soundtrack to that spontaneous prose? It was Charlie Parker. You know, it was monk. It was bebop. It was that was the, the rhythm that was informing their prose. And so they would use the same way that 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 monk and bird would get up there and do a jam session and spontaneously improvise. That's how they saw writing that we're going to get in there, get in, our, get on on the road. And I'm just going to go. I'm going to go with the rhythm, go with the beat. Right. The beat, the beat, the beat. Right. So everything is the beat. And so when I read that, I, I saw a parallel between them and, and my connection to hip hop because hip hop, you know, informs my prose the way that, you know, bebop and jazz inform the prose of the beat generation. Did you read Shakespeare or classics? Definitely, definitely, you know, but that came later. You know, um, Shakespeare and and, and the classics that they usually give you in school, that's not what got me into reading, you know. What got me into reading were writers that I could relate to, um, prose that I could relate to. I liked the fact that Kerouac was, you know— um, and these guys were rebels, you know what I mean, in America. They were uh, questioning the status quo. Um, they were even challenged, even in the way that they wrote, they challenged language. You know, they challenged notions of, of language. Kyrock would have these long sentences, spontaneous sentences with little to none, no punctuation. And so here you have this guy who's challenging in every way. And as, a, as an adolescent who's rebellious, I identify with that spirit. Later on, you know, in college and grad school, I, I started studying people like Shakespeare, you know, and I started seeing, again, parallels and things when I looked at African-American language, looking at something like The Tempest, for example, and seeing Prospero teaching Caliban the language and then Caliban using that language to curse him. And I started to realize, wow, there's parallels in in that even in, you know, at the African-American experience in terms of language and how we learned language and then how we use that language in very, you know, um, uh, you know, subversive ways sometimes. And so that was interesting to me.
0: Did your friends think you were kind of strange suddenly getting <laughs> kind of caught up in books, and was it like a light switch going on? I mean was it like one day you weren't a reader and the other day you were
1: Yeah, it was a light switch to some extent I mean I had gone through you know a, you know I talk about in the book so many different experiences that i that I had kind of coming up um you know friends dying, you know getting getting killed, um you know seeing people destroy their lives, to the drugs, and, and go to jail, and, and things like this. And so there was a lot of death and destruction around me. Um, reading, you know, became really um, an oasis. In, in, in so many ways, um, and, and each each book was like a country. It was like a, a new discovery, new opportunities, new new a whole new land. And so, yeah, it, it was kind of overnight. It, it but it came from my desire to be a writer, and and when I started reading, it it opened up ideas for me, you know, gave me new ideas, gave me thoughts about what I could do as a writer, and it just helped me in terms of my language, in terms of understanding writing. You know, it's really the best way to learn to be a writer is, you know, I'm a professor of creative writing now, but I always tell my students, if you really want to be a writer, then read. I mean, that's the best way you can learn to be a writer.
0: Did it kind of start to cut you off from your friends?
1: Um, no, not my real friends, you know. Real friends, you you know, they, they, they thought it was great, honestly, you know. Um, And my friends are still support. One of the things that I'm really happy about about this book is the amount of people who, you know, I'll tell you, I got the best compliment that I've ever received recently. Um, I was in uh, Washington State speaking at a school there, and a guy said, he's a guy who runs a juvenile detention center. He said to me, he said, M.K., I give your books to kids that hate reading. And that really touched me. You know what I mean? Um, because, you know, I've received lots of, you know, praise for, for different things that I've written. But that was different. That was like, you know, that was me. That was the kid that wasn't interested in, you know, Beowulf, wasn't interested in it. But you, you give me this. Okay and now now we're talking now i'm now I'm engaged. this resonates with me. This is something I can relate to. This is something that I, makes me laugh. This is something that's contemporary that that resonates and is relevant to my experience today and so that that was helpful for me, you know because um that's that's why I do it. My dedication in this in this book is to all my young bucks. you know what I mean?
0: You talk to a lot of school groups,
1: yeah, lots of schools, you know i I've lectured. Um, at hundreds of colleges and universities, I've. Uh, l- last year, I lectured at Harvard's graduation, um, Yale, Stanford, all, all schools, but also at prisons. You know, also at elementary schools, high schools. You know, um, just just, for me, writing and, and sharing. is an opportunity to share. You know, these ideas I have, these things that I've learned. Um, BUCK IS ABOUT THE GRACEFUL SURVIVAL AGAINST IMPOSSIBLE CIRCUMSTANCES. AND I WANT TO SHARE THAT WITH PEOPLE. YOU KNOW, I WANT TO SHARE MY STORY, SHARE MY JOURNEY, SHARE WHAT I'VE LEARNED, YOU KNOW, um, and, AND GIVE THEM HOPE AND INSPIRATION. SO ANYTIME PEOPLE ASK ME TO, to SPEAK SOMEWHERE OR SOMETHING, um, I'M UP FOR IT, YOU KNOW, BECAUSE THIS IS why, it's WHY I DO IT.
0: HOW OFTEN DO YOU COME ACROSS A 13- AND 14-YEAR-OLD KID AND SAY, THAT'S ME? AND WHAT DO YOU SAY TO THEM?
1: Uh, I, I come across a lot of kids like that, that I see myself in, you know, even sometimes older than that, that I see myself in, you know. Um, and, you know, it I depends on the, you know, I don't, I don't try to tell them kind of, you know, the same redundant message. I, I try to talk to them and see what they have to say and then try to cater what I'm going to say based on who they are and, and what they need at the time, you know. Um, I think it's important for them not to be fearful, you know, of success, of of their own potential. I think it's important for them to realize that, like I did, that you have to be an individual. You know, sometimes when you're young, you just want to follow your friends and be like everyone else. But there's so much strength and power in being your own individual um, and, and, you know, being your own, having your own identity and embracing that and owning that, you know? Um, And not being afraid to do that. So doing it unashamedly, being unashamedly you, you know? Why'd you get kicked out of a couple of schools? Oh, I was, you know, I was rebelling, man. I I didn't see, I didn't see the point of school, you know. Um, the schools that I was in, you know, I, I'll even read you a section from um, some of the the schools. You know, one of the, the the chapters is called the Pipeline, and I call it the Pipeline because the school was a pipeline to prison. You know, some schools are pipelines to to um to college, right? As as they should be. But other schools are pipelines to prison. These were Philadelphia schools? Yes, these were Philadelphia schools. What neighborhoods? Um this school that I'm about to describe is in the Alney area. And
0: private school or public school? This is a public school. And did you go to private
1: schools, too? I, I did. I had both experiences. and I actually had three, different, three uh, completely you know, different systems, one system private, one, uh, I went to a bunch of public schools, and then another system that was alternative to
0: all of that. And uh, did you come across a teacher in your earlier schools who connected with you, or do, what kind of relationship did you have with them? Uh,
1: not really, (laughs) honestly. Um. okay, here, I found it, sorry. (laughs) Go ahead. (laughs) We pour into school like syrup, steady and slow. This school looks just like jail. I wonder why mad schools look like jails, or do jails look like schools? The jail my brother is in actually looks nicer than this. If schools look like prisons and prisons look like schools, will we act like students? or prisoners. Police roam the hallways whirling nightsticks like band directors. The windows are tinted with bars. No sunlight like a casino and you never win in here either. At my old school the teachers always mess with me. At Fells, oh well anyway you get the idea. Um, the teachers don't know who I am. Overcrowded like homicide, it's the opposite of my old school. They say, this is, they say my old school was one of the best schools in the city. This school is one of the worst. Old school, private. This school, pub, public. Old school, mostly white. This school, mostly black. Old school, kids' parents got tuition money. New school, parents ain't even got lunch money. The metal detector line is long, like the line to get into club dances on Saturday night. A bucket full of lighters, Nail files, pocket knives, everybody beeping, police digging through bags like moles. It takes forever to get in. The hallway is a fashion show. The bell goes off like we're in some factory somewhere. Here. And that's what it reminded me of. Um, A jail. Is
0: anyone learning anything there?
1: No. Well, you're learning how to fight, how to survive. You're learning that, you know, this system doesn't really... Work for you. It's not. It's it's not designed with love. It's not designed to take you and elevate you and get you ready for college and you know to be able to take care of your family. It's preparing you for a life of subservience or, or prison. Or
0: is there a way to fix that?
1: Yeah, I think we need to completely, I mean, even this whole notion of the bell going off like a factory somewhere, you know, um, that whole model that we have right now, rote memorization, regurgitation, bells ringing, that's based on, a you know, 19th century industrial factory worker model. That's what our school system is based on. We need to completely revamp it. And one of the things that, you know, um, I think that we need to revamp it with, and this is interesting because people don't talk about this when they talk about education, is love there's no love in when i go into the school system in baltimore and i go in school system in philly and i see what's happening in the inner cities i think it's criminal and i don't see any love i'm not talking about there aren't there are individual teachers who care right but they're obviously swamped these oh, school classes are overcrowded they're under-resourced they're understaffed but i'm talking about in the design of the school in the design of the curriculum we don't see that love right that love for the next generation and actually trying to give them something that's going to happen. So I think that's, that's part of it. I think it can be fixed. I think even the alternative school that I went to is a great example of that, you know, the blank page, encouraging creativity. It was the first time when I got that blank page that I'd ever been asked to do something creative, you know, in, in a class, right, to actually express myself, you know, and not just copy what was on the board.
0: What kind of influence did your parents have in your life oh compared my. to, say, your friends?
1: Yeah, my, my parents, you know, the major influences in my life were my brother, number one, um, my older brother. He's very prominent in the book. His name is Uzi. Um, my dad and then my mom, and they're all really prominent in the book. Um, I'll read you a little bit from from my brother first, just so you can kind of get a get a sense of who my brother is. um This is brother who was in prison yeah he he is he still there no he's he's not and and throughout the book he's he's in and out, but his letters from jail are in interspersed throughout the book as well, so you get to hear what he's telling me um but Uzi is the color of walnuts and has a long sharp face like the African mask my dad hangs up everywhere. His name is Dao, my parents call him Daudi, and the hood calls him Uzi. He's got a bunch of other names, too, like some superhero. Uwap, Dau, Uzito, Uzito, Wap the Culture, Cool D, Pinch P, Big U, Barker Lark, Drop the His Rhyme, Big Fly, and Stilt the Kilt. And this is how it always goes. Me following Uzi in everything, everywhere, like his little black Jan sport, covered in marks a lot, strapped tight to his back, koala style, anywhere... Any place. He does it, I do it. He tries it, I'm trying it. He can, why can't I? Sometimes I even duck like him under doorways, even though he's way taller and I don't need to duck. So that's my brother, and um, yeah, he had an incredible influence on me, you know. He's really intelligent, um, and he was always attracted to the streets, you know, so he was always in the streets and just educating me about things. You know, I say in here, I say, um, I follow my brother to sweaty Badlands house parties that always end in crazy shirtless rumbles with everybody howling, Northside, Northside, in the middle of the street. To broaden Rockland to cop dime bags from one of the dusty bodegas with nothing but baking soda and expired Bisquick on the shelves. To freestyle ciphers on South Street that the police always break up for no reason. To crack on Johns getting off the L at 69th Street like, yo, short a, let me holler at you for a minute. To scale the fence to watch Sad Eye, the Jordan of Street Ball, hoop at 16th and Susquehanna. To skate the ledges and steps at Love Park until we get chased away. To bomb the Orange Line subway with Sharpies and Kiwi polish sticks. This is my brother, right? Um, and so he introduced me to the whole city, North Philly, West Philly, South Philly, Southwest Philly. We were everywhere, you know, and so he's a a huge part of my life, and that's why seeing him, you know, incarcerated had a huge impact on me. Um, What was he arrested for? It was, initially he was arrested for stealing a car and that was um here in, in philadelphia and then um and that's kind of like the, how the book opens the first chapter and then he gets sent to arizona and gets into some more trouble there where you know and we that's kind of more serious and i end up going to arizona seeing him out there and just kind of seeing that whole situation unfold what's he doing now now he's doing, he's doing much better now he's doing much better you know so he's it's I'm, I'm so happy to, to see you know a lot of the people in this book they're not doing so well anymore but one thing I can say is my immediate family is, is doing well um but yeah then my dad is a huge influence on me as well you know my dad I, I talk about my house being mad afrocentric um and, and in fact uh, I'll read you a, a little small section from from that because my dad um, I'll talk about my dad The newspapers call our father the father of Afrocentricity because he created it. Pops is always preaching Afrocentricity. He was a Church of Christ minister way back when, one of those child preachers, and he still sounds like he's in the pulpit when he talks about black people, white people, and the struggle. I remember this debate he took me to at East Stroudsburg University a few years back, him versus Cornel West versus Arthur Schlesinger. It was packed, standing room only, I remember how Wes, this cool black dude with a big afro and a tight three piece suit, talked with his hands flying fast like he was conducting an orchestra. And how Schlesinger, this old white guy with hair the color of milk and a red bow tie, sounded like a statue. I remember the cheers, the boos, the ad libs. Most of all, though, I remember how dope my pop was his passion, energy, confidence, intelligence. Half the time, I didn't even know what he was talking about, hegemony, pedagogy, subverting the dominant paradigm, but I was proud. Our crib is mad Afrocentric, naked African statues standing everywhere, ritual masks ice grilling down from the walls, portraits of Martin, Malcolm, Harriet, from the wallpaper to the plates, everything is stamped with Africa. Even my favorite porn series, My Baby Got Back, is made by a company called Afrocentric Productions. Beauties that give up the booty, the box under my bed says. Mr. Marcus, Lexington Steel, and loudmouth Wesley Pipes nailing Nubian queens like Janet, Jack, Me, Obsession, Midori, Monique, and Lacey Duvall in Doggy Style, Reverse Cowgirl, and Missionary. I tell Pops about the other Afrocentrics, and he's disgusted. Say what? but he's the one who's always talking about how black people should have their own stores, own banks, own schools. Shouldn't we have our own porn studios too? (laughs) So my house was mad Afrocentric. You know, my dad um, was a proponent of Afrocentricity. You know, he, I grew up with, even though, you know, he's from, grew up, you know, he's born in Georgia. You know, my dad wore African clothes every day, dashiki every day. Um, And so my friends who were African-American would always be like, you know, is your are your parents African? And I'd be like, well, no, not in the way you think. They're not born in Africa. They've never really lived in Africa other than when I was born, but they are African in their the way that they think and the way that they do things. And so um, so that had an impact on me as well. You know, I always kind of was conscious about Africa and knew about Africa and was proud to be from Africa. And that was my, my father's influence. And my mom is a dancer. She's a, and I think that's where I get my, you know, as a filmmaker, I think that's where I get my dramatic sensibilities from. She was a dancer, a choreographer. She was actually the, uh, the director of the National Dance Company of Zimbabwe. That's what she was doing in Zimbabwe. And, um, and she's an art, she's just an artist, you know. She's a true artist and really uh, compassionate and sensitive to the world. And one of the things I do in this book is I intersperse my mom's diary You know, I used to secretly read her diary when I was young uh, because she was struggling with mental health issues, and it was the only way that we really communicated is me reading this secret diary, and she would write about me, my dad, my brother, the most personal things, intimate details about her life, about her struggle, about, you know— you know, attempts at suicide, I mean, the most, the deepest things you can imagine she would write about, and I would read it, and so what I, what I did in this book is I interspersed those journal entries, those diary entries throughout the book, and so you get this really, um, you get a lot of different perspectives in Buck.
0: You, you quote a part of her diary where she says, uh, my sons love the hood and its material aspects. Was, he, was she right about that? Did you love the hood and its material aspects?
1: You know, yeah. Uh, I think what, what she is talking about there is we were attracted to the energy. You know, all kids, you know, a lot, not all kids, right? We can't speak in those kind of generalities. But most kids that I know, any race, any, any, no matter where they live, are attracted to action, right? We want to be in, we want action. We want to jump off a cliff or bungee jump or we want to, you know, uh, play football or we want to do things that are exciting, that are slightly edgy, that are living on. So yeah, for, for us, you know, rather than, being inside the house, you know, um, we wanted to be outside where the action was, you know, where the sirens are, where, where where the gunshots are, where the, you know, where where the action is, where where the girls are, you know what I mean? We call them Jones, where the Jones are, where where everything is. You know, we want to be where the life is, where the energy is, where the electricity is. And so, yeah, we were attracted to that. Um, and I think one of the things that we realize and I realize and the book kind of, you know, reveals is how some of the dangers of some of that, the peril of some of that, right? Um, you know, and that's and that's one of the things the book does. But yeah, and and I still, you know, one of the things about me is, you know, I've you know traveled to over forty countries and um, you know done done so many things. But I, no matter where I go, no matter, I will always love you know the hood. I will always love my people. I mean, that's part of who I am. You know what I mean? And so I've got a lot of love for. Um, people everywhere but especially people who are, are struggling you know um, and so I think in that way um, she was right but I think I still feel that way but now for different reasons uh, what is the UPG and the UPG codes oh UPK well that was UPK just, oh, yeah sorry. that was that was a crew um that that I was in uptown like a gang yeah yeah a crew a gang yeah uptown killers
0: Literal killers?
1: No, just like, you know, everybody wants to be a, you know, to, you, the whole notion when you create a crew or a gang is, is to make it sound tough. So Uptown Killers sounds pretty tough. You know what I mean? You don't want to be, you know, Uptown, you know, uh, you know injurers. You want to be Uptown Killers. You know, you want to you know, go all the way. So, no, it was just a name. I mean, it's just a name like anything else. I want to
0: read a couple things from the the Thug Life Codes and it says, uh, the boys in blue don't run nothing, we do. We control the hood and make it safe for squares. Well, first of all, was that really true? And were you one of the squares? No. So basically that, that whole code is um, was
1: part of a thug life code that Tupac and Matulu Shakur created. Um, so Tupac Shakur, you know, his, his stepfather was this dude named Matulu Shakur. He's a political prisoner and was very conscious about, like, you know, how to take the energy of hip-hop and young people, but to, to give it some, a little bit more substance. And so they created this, what they call Thug Life Code. And Thug Life stood for, was an acronym, stood for The Hate You Gave Little Infants Fs Everybody. Right. I don't think I can curse on here. Right. Um, right. It's, Say whatever you want. Oh, really? OK, cool. Well, the hate you gave little infants fucks everybody. That's what thug life stands for. And so, um, oh, you should have told me that earlier, man. I would have been, <laughs> I would have been reading other parts, man. That's all my stuff. I left out. But anyway, um, you know, uh, that that's what it stands for. And yeah, and it was a, what it was was a code that, you know, crews could crews gangs, whatever, could. Uh, live by and, and make rules by and decisions by. So when I was 14, um, I became a part of this one that was in my neighborhood. Did you ever get in trouble with the law? Um, slightly, not really. You know what I mean? I was, I was fortunate to, to never really, I never got in real trouble with the law. Um, the, the one, there's one incident um, that I describe in the book where I was in the wrong place at the wrong time. Um, so I spent the weekend at the 35th precinct um you know but i was a juvenile i wasn't charged with anything i didn't do anything but i was i was in a car with someone who stabbed someone else in the car i was driving the guy in the back seat stabbed the guy in the front seat and we all went to jail one of them went to hospital we all kind of got booked and so i went to the 35th precinct and i just was there for the weekend and while i was there i had Another epiphany. <laughs> um, an incredible epiphany, actually. Um, and I've got to share that one with you. Um, so I'm sitting there, and some things really start to crystallize in my mind about life and what I want to do with my, with my life and, and where I want to go. Um, so I want to read you a little section from that. Decisions lead to options, options to choices, choices to freedom. We all design our own reality, write our own script, build our own house or prison or coffin. Malo, Me Against Law and Order, is about being a true rebel, pushing against the grain, making my own path, bucking the system. I think about this show I saw on the Nature Channel the other day about elephants about how despite weighing up to 25,000 pounds and standing 13 feet tall, they can still be chained. How? I wondered. It starts when they're babies. Someone puts a metal chain attached to a wooden peg nailed into the ground around the baby elephant's foot. The baby elephant struggles, to, struggles but fails to break free and learns at that very moment not to struggle. That struggle is useless. Later on, even when the elephant can easily break free, it doesn't. I look around the 35th precinct at all these sad, hard, gray faces and see nothing but elephants. So that was an epiphany for me. You know, um, that was actually the same place that my brother first got arrested. So it it was kind of, you know, but when I got arrested, I was already writing. I was already reading. I was already, so it was really a, it was a, a it was just a a hiccup in, you know, and otherwise I was speeding toward a a new, a new purpose, a new destiny, a new journey. But this was kind of a a roadblock, something that set me back a little bit. But, you know, it wasn't a, it wasn't a major issue. Um, But yeah, that was the only time I'd ever had any runs, run-ins or anything like that.
0: When did you start thinking that you might actually graduate from high school and go to college?
1: Um, I knew that I was going to go to college when I started reading and writing seriously which was probably in around 11th grade you know um up until then I hadn't really thought about it it wasn't and I I didn't even know if I was going to be alive um so once I got to be about 17, I started reading, I started writing, I found purpose, I found life, energy, um, things in my family started to improve. You know, I knew that college was, was real, was an option, and so uh, I went to school in Pennsylvania, actually. I went to, to Lafayette College in eastern Pennsylvania.
0: How'd you pick Lafayette? Who, who, did anybody kind of guide you toward that? You know, that was my
1: dad's recommendation. My dad said, he, I don't know why he said he said, I, I know I wanted to be close to home. And um, he thought that, you know, he heard good things about Lafayette College, you know, it was a well-ranked school, and uh, it was small liberal arts, and I was coming from a small alternative school, so I wanted to be in a smaller environment. Um, And so I don't even remember how it went down, but we picked that. And I was the only school I applied to, and I got in, and that's where I went. And uh, so I went to Lafayette College, and then I spent a year at the University of London, School of Oriental and African Studies. So I lived in England my junior year. And then after Lafayette graduated uh, in 2004, I uh, went to grad school at UCLA um, School of Film and Television.
0: But when you got to Lafayette, how did you fit in?
1: You know, it was interesting. Um, I, I, I'm one of those people that you know I'm adaptable. So you know, I've I make, I've got friends from all different walks of life. You know, um, I mean, I've really got I've got friends that are billionaires and friends that ask me for forty dollars. Western Union, like seriously, like this is my life. So I've always been able to make friend, have different kinds of friends and associations. But um, it was a challenge at first, you know, because um, the alternative school I went to, Creffa, was diverse, um, not just racially, but diverse in terms of thought. You know, there were a lot of different ideas and people with different ideas. So when I first got to college, it seemed kind of homogenous, you know. Um, but I think quickly what I learned is that you know. Below the surface, there's actually de- there's actually substance there, and people were not as homogenous as they seemed or as they came across, you know. So, um, so yeah, it took me a minute to to kind of adjust, but I liked it. But what I realized about college is that, you know, and I think this is part of why, like, you know, I'm so young, but have done, you know, this is my fourth book. Buck is my fourth book. I've, I've made three movies, um, working on my fourth now. You know, part of the reason why I've been so productive so quickly is because. I did so much when i was young you know you know when people go to college for the first time a lot of times it's their first taste of freedom right so they're drinking for the first time they're smoking for the first time they're exploring their sexuality for the first time you know it's like whoa you know now i've been on my own since i was 14. i've been doing all of that since i was 14. so by the time i got to college i wanted to be a writer so i spent my you know, instead of partying and doing that i was just in my dorm writing so my first book came out when I was a sophomore um, like water running off my back my first movie came out when i was in college you know um... my second book came out when i was in grad school you know all these things were happening while i was in school but they were having an impact in the the world way outside of school you know i went on a book tour i was in sophomore year i was in jamaica london You know, doing engagements you know what i mean signing books for people you know that that was my my reality so i think even I, I liked my school and I really liked the resources. My school, we were able to, I say we, I have a, a business partner that I work with, a producing partner, Ben Haas, and we went to Lafayette together. We went to UCLA together. And what we did when we were there was we were able to use the small liberal arts environment to cultivate our needs. And so we created the first Hip Hop digazine, a DVD magazine at Lafayette College. We raised $100,000. The school incubated us, gave us an office in the basement of the business building Gave us taught us courses about how to write a business plan. We met with some of the top executives who had graduated who or alums from Lafayette College. Um, and we set up this business. We hired we had interns um, who were students at Lafayette who were interning with our company and they were getting college credit for it. I was interning with my own company and getting credit for it. So the liberal arts structure really allowed us to design our own education, which is what my book is about, which my whole life is about. It's about designing your own education. The world is a university. It's a whole Every Everyone's a professor. You're a professor, but not just you. The guy, the homeless guy outside is a professor. He's got something to offer, you know, and you've got to ask him. You don't. And so people. And that's what this book is about. It's like. Sometimes we think that you go to school and you get educated. But no, education is happening all the time. You know, I'm constantly absorbing and learning from just all these people. So, yeah, so the liberal arts structure was really cool. It allowed us to tweak our own education, um, raise money, learn about business, have an office. We have phones. We're doing international business. You know, we, we really set it up. It was How would you learn all that stuff? Uh, you know, first of all, the desire to be creative. I wanted to create, I wanted to produce these things. And in order to do it, I needed money. Okay, so I need to raise $100,000. Well, how am I going to get $100,000? Oh, we well, need a business plan. Okay, well, how do you do a business plan? Okay, so let's learn how to do a business plan. You know, everything, that's what I love about the world that we live in. I mean, all this stuff is available. There's no reason why you, why anyone can't write a business plan or can't learn how to write a business plan. The information is out there. You can read thousands of business plans. You can look at successful ones. You can seek people out. So I, I sat down with business professors and we went through business plans that I'd written you know and they 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 red inked them up you know go back and go back to the drawing board and we came back and we came back And so we learned through that we went on Google and, and read business plans and templates you know um, but we learned you know we, we met with lots of different investors you know before we were able to actually raise money but that right there what we did there we've been doing ever since those skills that we learned we've just been doing on a higher level now. So right now, you know, we just raised money for the Buck movie. So we're shooting the Buck movie next year in Philadelphia, 2014. We did the same thing. You raise money, you do investor, you have a plan, you got, you know, you've got projections, you, you've got the whole thing, you know, you've got a, a, a investment strategy, you've got a marketing strategy, a distribution strategy, all that stuff we learned in college on our own though, you know, with the
0: support of the college. So. I think you're the first guest on the book show to ever do a promotional video for a book. <laughs> How'd that come about? Yeah,
1: well, you know, um, we live in a visual culture. I mean, this is a TV show, you know what I mean? Um, you know, we live in a visual culture. Every and and the the younger you get in this culture, in the society, the more the more you communicate and think in in, in, in in visual images, right? We think in images. You know, we talk. To, I talk about sub-vocalization, but yeah, but there's also some, image, some imagery in terms of we think also in, in images. We see images, we think. And so young people, that's how they get their information. They're on their phones all day. They're on their iPads all day. They're on computers all day. They're on the TV all day. I mean, it's, it's constantly images, constantly images. Even as a professor, I see how they learn through images, right? And so images are incredibly powerful because, you know, sometimes as writers we say, oh, well, we want them to start reading more, reading more, and reading is great, and they should be reading, but we can't underestimate the power of visual images and, and, and cinema and how that motion pictures and audio and how that also can initiate, you know, stimulate the brain and, and activate thoughts. So for me, I wanted to create a book trailer that was going to get people hype about the book, you know, um, and, and first of all, the book, as you've read, it's not written like a a, nor a traditional memoir. It's different. You know what I mean? It's different in the rhythm, in the way that it's written, in the style, in the language, um, in the structure. It's, it's different. I took a different approach and, and I embraced that. I wanted to make a trailer that takes a different approach. So even if you have seen a book trailer before, you haven't seen one with, you know, quadcopter aerial shots. But yeah, where'd
0: you get the money for all that? Because you have some expensive-looking <laughs> shots.
1: You know, I'm a filmmaker, and I'm an independent filmmaker, so I, that means I also know how to to do things that are high, very high quality, you know, and not spend a million dollars. And so, you know, but I, but I have a crew, you know, I have a crew that I work with. Um, Schultz Visuals out of L.A. You know, we shot some of it in L.A., in Malibu, some of it in, in Philly, North Philly, New Kirk Street. Um, we shot some of it on the, the, the roof of the Phoenix, the aerial shots, the Love Park, you know, all these things. But, um, yeah, you know, I'm a, I'm, a, I'm a filmmaker. I'm an entrepreneur. You know, um, and so all this is is, is or organic to me. It's natural to me. It's part of. So the the, the trailer budget was part of uh, part of the budget for marketing for the for the for the for the book.
0: Well, uh, in in your acknowledgements, you say to Maya, my queen. You, you got to know Maya Angelou. Well, actually, that's a different Maya. <laughs> oh, <laughs> yeah. That's, well, tell me about both. That's Mayas. actually my
1: queen. <laughs> um, that's actually my my real queen, and then um, Ion is my son. But Maya Angelou is my mentor, um, and she's been incredibly helpful for me, um, you know, throughout the years. Um, when I was writing Buck, there was a period where I was really struggling, you know. Um, just, it's difficult to write a memoir, you know. You go through periods where, that, are, that are really difficult, and you struggle, and you don't know quite where to go from here. And I, uh, I, I went to see her. I was speaking at Wake Forest University, and... Um, I went to see Dr. Angelo. Did she
0: know you at that point? Yeah, she knew me.
1: We, we wrote a film together called The Black Candle, um, and we did that in 2007. That film came out in 2008. We, that's a Starz TV film. And so we did that a long time ago. We wrote She narrates it as well. And that was the first project. That was the first time I met her and the first thing we ever worked on. And since then, we've been in contact, you know, and she's been my mentor. And so I went to see her when I spoke at Wake Forest, And she told me so many great things. You know, I I said, Dr. Angelo, you know, or Auntie is actually what I call her. Um, But I said, Auntie, you know, I'm I'm struggling with this, you know, this thing, you know, what advice do you have for me? And she said, well, she had a lot of advice for me. She said, um, you know, one, she quoted the poet Terrence. She said, um, you know, you are a human being, therefore nothing human is alien to you. So you got this, you know, number one. This is... You're, this is not alien to you, right? This is in you. Um, but number two, she said, tell the truth. She said, the truth is universal. She said, tell the emotional truth. She said, that's what's important. She said, sometimes people think the truth is the date that something happened or the exact location of something. happened. that's not the truth. He said, the emotional truth, how did you feel? How did it make you feel? What did it do to you? How did it affect your your family? Those are the emotional. He said, those things are what's going to make your book resonate with, you know, uh, a woman in Ohio, a white woman in Ohio who's never been to Philadelphia, Pennsylvania. You know, going to make your book connect with um, a, a kid in Africa right, in Zimbabwe, in Harare, who's never been, right? You're gonna make it connect with, you know, an Indian guy. And where all these different people can connect with it because the truth, when you deal with those universal archetypes, right, when we talk about, you know, love and pain and joy and how we felt and we deal with our emotional core, it connects to everybody. And so so Dr. Angelo, Auntie Maya has been extremely helpful in my journey, just giving me the confidence to to tell my story, teaching me a lot of things about writing um, and just being funny and being like, you know, she's really hilarious.
0: She's got a lot of jokes. Were were parts of this book difficult to write, like too personal? Were the things you left out because they were too personal?
1: No, I didn't leave anything out because it was too personal. Um, I always tell people though, you know, because people say sometimes ask, you know, well, do you leave anything out of a book or memoir? And I say, well, there's a lot of things you leave out, you know. I mean, if you think about how many times I, you know, how many how many hours I was sleeping during. These years, you know, or how many how many times I took a shower, or went to the bathroom. I mean, that's none of that's in there, you know. So there's things you leave out, but nothing substantive, nothing important to the story, you know, was left out. I wanted to be raw and completely honest, you know. Part of this book was liberating for me. It was cathartic. It was for me to be able to just write freely without worrying about anything, you know, not thinking about um, oh this is too personal, or I don't want to reveal this, or you know what's this person gonna think? No, this is it. It's all out there, you know, um, and that, that that's an empowering feeling. You know, you start to realize that sometimes people think that that makes them vulnerable. But what I realize is that vulnerability actually is strength, you know, the strength of, of sharing and being so open and honest like that, you know. So now I didn't leave anything out. Nothing was too personal. Um, I really wanted this to be a personal book, to be intimate. I wanted you to, because I feel like, you know, going back to visual culture and, and our generation, you know, the young... They they see through. They're so everything is so transparent. So they see through if it's not real, if it's not authentic, if you're not being honest, if you're being disingenuous, they can tell. And nobody wants that. Nobody wants to read that. Nobody wants to yeah. Is is
0: this an audiobook?
1: Yeah, it is. Did you read it? Yeah. Was it fun to read? It was so fun to read. Um, yeah, I definitely I read the audiobook. Um and then a Ojo, is a, she read my mom's journal entries. She's an actress. And um, it was really fun.
0: We only have about a minute left, but you you said how everybody is a professor, but you really are a professor. I'm You're really a professor. To be a professor. Yeah, I'm
1: a tenured professor, the youngest tenured professor in the history of my university. How
0: old were you when you were tenured? Twenty-five. What's a class of yours like?
1: It's like um, a performance, a show, a dialogue, a conversation, a lecture, a movie, a comedy show... And a library session, and a workshop, and a creative, spontaneous gathering, and it's all that. It's just, it's fun. It's That's at
0: Morgan State. Morgan State in University Baltimore. in Baltimore. Can ordinary people just sign up for it, or is there a waiting list?
1: Yeah, you know, um, most students, you know, usually my classes are really full. Um, but I have people all the time who don't even go to the college who just come and they ask if they can sit in. And I'm really cool with that. You know, in fact, someone in Philly, we did an event in Philly yesterday at Crefell, and someone said, hey, can I come to your class tomorrow? I said, yeah, come on in. You know, free, free education.
0: Well, I, w- I wish we had more time. We've been speaking with M.K. Asante. He's the author of this book, Buck, A Memoir. Thank you very much. Thank you so much for having me. Appreciate it. You've been listening to a podcast of P.A. Books, a production of PCN, the Pennsylvania Cable Network. We'd like to hear from you. Our email address is pabooks at pcntv.com. Like us on Facebook to learn more about PA Books.